Okay, good evening, church. It's good to be with you. Toby asked me to fill the pulpit tonight, so I'm glad to do so. Always happy to have an opportunity to speak with you, and tonight will be more of a formal Bible study, I suppose. And I think we're going to do a quick run-through on the book of Jude. Now you may think, well, how did you end up with the book of Jude when you started out with ancient Near East and Second Temple literatures? Well, I get to briefly reference those ancient texts because of the book of Jude. We're going to get to some things in Jude where I'll reference some things from Second Temple literature, and that will kind of uh, fulfill my desire to introduce you to those things. So it'll be brief, probably quick, but hopefully at the end we'll make some application. And technically speaking, uh, one of our elders here, Doug Wagner, he said I had until 7.30. And so (laughs) I don't know if you guys agree with that or not, but we are supposed to obey our elders, and so I can technically go for a few more hours. So I'll get my my timer out because I really don't want to keep you here till 7.30. My wife really doesn't want me to keep you here till 7.30. So let's look at the book of Jude. It's a short book. One of those one-chapter books that we have in the Bible. We're going to read through it, then we're going to back up and hit some interesting things that we see verse to verse. I'm going to bring out certain things to your attention. Not everything, but I'm especially going to bring your attention to some of the strange things that are in the book of Jude, because the book of Jude is weird. It's, it's got some strange things going on in here. I really like strange things. I love it when the Bible has weird, strange things to talk about that I have no idea what it's you know, talking about. That's, that's my favorite thing to go study and to research. And so I love talking about weird things. I don't know if that makes me a weird guy, but uh, there you go. So we'll start in Jude, verse 1. says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals by these things, they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. All right. Well, not too long of a, of a letter. I don't know if it's quite the encouraging daily devotional that you might normally take in, but I think that there are important points here that we can bring out. So let's go back to the beginning, and we'll look at Jude. He says he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So that word for bondservant there is in the Greek doulos, means slave, but contextually speaking, it can be rendered as servant, sometimes bondservant, sometimes slave. And so when translators are going through the Greek and they're putting it into another language, they're putting it into English for us, they have to consider the context and make an interpretive move. So that's interesting, right? Because translation isn't just about knowing one word in a language and converting it into another word in this language. Well, translation often requires interpretation as well. And so that's why there are many different translations because there are different schools of thought or guiding principles which may be leading the translators in the rendering that they're making, whether it's your NASB, which I read from tonight, or the ESV, which I know a lot of people like. I like the ESV as well, or any other number of translations 
There are different goals and objectives in mind when they translate. And if you read the introduction to your Bible at the very beginning, a lot of people haven't done this, but at the very beginning of your Bible before Genesis, there's usually a forward or an introduction that tells you how the translators went about this particular translation. So he calls himself a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. And that's not unfamiliar to us. We know that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that we are now slaves of righteousness, no longer slaves to sin. But, of course, we sometimes don't use the word slave because it has a very strong image and stigma attached to it from our own history as a country and slavery from the 17th and 18th century. So, he calls himself, though, a bondservant of Jesus Christ as opposed to a relative of Jesus Christ, which also would have been accurate. He says he's the brother of James, and there was really just one James there was, who was very, very well-known and popular, and that was James the Just, who was also a relative of Jesus. Now, of course, there was uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the apostles, um, and there was another uh, James, son of Alphaeus, but James, son of Alphaeus, kind of falls off the map. We don't get to learn too much more of what happens to him. And then um, James, the brother of John, he gets killed. He gets martyred pretty early on. And so since Jude is written after the apostles have already spread the gospel and they've delivered the faith, we get that from verse 17 when he says, remember the words spoken to you already beforehand by the apostles. It's likely that this is a reference to James the Just, who was uh, considered a, bishop or overseer of the church in Jerusalem. And so James is the brother then of Jude. Well, we know that these are relatives of Jesus as well. And there are two major traditions for what kind of relatives they are. So you can find both of these traditions going pretty back, pretty far back early in church history. And one tradition says that, well, Joseph had uh, other children, uh, either Uh, from a previous marriage or with Mary. And then there's another tradition that says um, these are relatives, and the word for brother is kind of an umbrella term, and it can include other things like cousins or people that you lived with. So both of those traditions are interpretive options, but Jude opts purposefully not to choose the self-declaration of I'm related to Jesus which is more of a humble introduction, right? He's saying, I am a servant of Jesus, just as you are servants of Jesus. He says, this is written to those who are called. Um, specifically, it says, the called. The word there is kletos in the Greek. It sounds very similar to what we have with the word translated church, which is ekklesia. If you can hear a little bit of the same, kletos, ekklesia. Ekklesia means the called out ones. So that's what the church is. We've been called out of the world into Christ's church to be his body on earth, to do his work, his hands, to be his hands and feet. So he says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. I don't know why, but Jude often packs things in groups of three. And so... If you are a teacher or a preacher or you want some ideas for some future classes, uh, Jude is going to give you at least four or five ideas for a three-point sermon if you go through the letter. So here's your first one. Uh, Christians are called, beloved, and kept. So there's your first one. Just put a poem in there and sing an invitation song, and then you're all set. He says, may, thank you. 
Got an amen from my mother-in-law, so that's good. It says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Well, there's another three-point sermon, right? Mercy, peace, and love. A lot of New Testament letters are introdu- introduced with the, the phrase of, may grace be multiplied to you. Jude, he actually uh, just mentions grace, I think, once. And it's in verse 4, and it's in reference to a certain group of people who have perverted grace. And so this is a dire situation that the audience has found themselves in, that Jude wants to guide them through. And so mercy is really the primary word that Jude wants to use. And what's the difference between grace and mercy? Um, In a non-technical way, uh, an illustration that I like is thinking about getting pulled over. You know, let's say you were speeding and you got pulled over. And the police officer lets you off with a warning. So he doesn't give you a ticket. He lets you off with a warning. You deserve a ticket, but he's not going to give you one. He's going to give you a warning instead. That would be mercy. And then the police officer gives you a pair of Super Bowl tickets on top of that. It's like, that would be grace, right? That's a gift. And so it's like, you didn't deserve it, (laughs) but that would be a gift. So there's mercy and there's grace. Here, Jude is focusing on mercy. He's focusing on a situation in which there are uh, situations where where judgment needs needs to take place. And, And until God fulfills his judgment, Jude is directing his audience to understand God's mercy towards each other. But interestingly enough, he never directs the mercy towards the other group, which he wants to talk about. So who is that other group? Well, he says, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he wanted it to be a nice letter, but it couldn't be. So in face of the emergency, he said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was handed down, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Some interesting things in there. So he says, the faith. So it's important to recognize the difference between when the New Testament talks about faith, having faith, like from Hebrews 11, and the faith, which is not belief, but the thing in which you believe. So the faith can be uh, identified as that which was handed down by the apostles. He said it was handed down once for all to the saints. Well, who are the saints? Well, the word for saints uh, is hagios, and it literally means holy ones. And it would actually be better, I think, if translators would not use the word saints, but rather use the word holy ones, because it gives us a little more insight into how the New Testament writers view Christians. You go back to the Old Testament, and most of the time when it talks about holy ones, it's talking about angels. So that's pretty interesting. Angels are these beings of, of light who dwell in God's presence. And so there's something that has been changed within us as People who now belong to Christ, people who have been redeemed, people who are being transformed, we're becoming, well, for lack of better terms, we're becoming shinier in a way, in our soul, and our spirit. And so there's a close correlation then that New Testament writers often make between God's holy angels and God's now holy people through Christ Jesus. And so this is a uniting of all of God's family. Uniting of his heavenly children and his earthly children. So there's the saints. There's the faith which was handed down once for all 
to the saints, to God's people. And it's interesting how he said it was handed down. So that's past tense. In the Greek, it's aorist. It's a snapshot. It happened. It's complete. And that means that not every uh, letter that we have is a synopsis of the faith. It's like, no, most of the letters that we have from the New Testament assume that the audience already knows what the faith is, the thing that they've been taught that's been handed down by the apostles. And so a lot of the letters, they are reminding the Christians of the things they already know in the context of some problem so that they can use those guiding principles to move past some sort of conflict, to find resolution. So there is no one book in the New Testament that has an outline of the faith. Isn't that interesting? So how do we know what the faith is then? Well, we go about it almost as if we're putting together a collage. New Testament Gospels and Acts and the letters, it's like a collage of information. It's all there together. And you almost, what you see with uh, scholars and interpreters is that you almost see people take an approach of sort of a reverse engineering. And so they're taking the collage and they're pulling the things out of the collage to come up with an outline that we call the faith. <laughs> and every now and then, we come across something where we're like, well, this is close enough. Let's call this the faith, right? And so uh, a common example would be in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, I believe, where it talks about all the ones, right? One uh, body, one spirit, one hope, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. She's like, well, maybe that's, maybe that's the faith. She's like, well... I'm sure that encapsulates the faith, but it doesn't, like, expound upon every one of those. So we don't have a, a systematic theology handed down to us through the New Testament, do we? We have letters given to people based on presuppositions and subtext. It's like they just assume that you know what they're talking about, and that's because, well, they were the original audience. And so that works. That works just fine. <laughs> but what you go through then is you see that over time... Uh, there are going to be things that the church throughout history has always done and practiced and interpreted. And so those things sort of become more solidified. And you see those things come about and discussed at certain key moments in church history. So we'll, we'll, say, we'll leave it at that, but all that to say is that whatever the faith is, it was handed down, it was once for all, it was given to a community of people, communities in connection of holy ones, of people who have been transformed by Christ and who are now following the lead of the apostles and those whom the apostles left to continue to lead the church. But, verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. This is the other group. This is not the group that he says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is a separate group. They're not the church. They're not the Christians. They're not the ones who need mercy or need to be shown mercy or need to have more mercy. It's a different group of people. And how do we know they're a different group? Because they crept in. They're other. So if they've crept in, that means that there is an understanding of whoever these people are, their actions from here on out that we're going to read about they were planned and intentional. And the actions 
that we're going to read about are, well, Jude will put words on it, but to be honest with you, Jude does not give you lots of specific information. And I think that's probably best. Uh, if Paul says in Ephesians 5.12 that it is shameful even to mention the things that they do in secret. Paul has another group of people in mind. But yeah, there are some things which the writer knows, the audience knows, and you don't have to go into too much detail because it would be not beneficial at all. So, all that goes to show you is that these are not minor things that this other group is responsible for, but they're quite um, insidious and evil. So they've crept in unnoticed. Unnoticed is interesting. That means that um, they're good at camouflaging. They're good at talking or deceiving or however you want to put it. Uh, These are going to be, I think, rightfully called false teachers, but sometimes we use the word false teacher a little too quickly to describe somebody who has an interpretation on a certain passage that, like, we disagree with their interpretation. It's like, wow, you're a false teacher, because I must be right. (laughs) Me being wrong is not an option, so you must be a false teacher, because I'm certainly not a false teacher. Well, that's a bad habit to get into. Of course, people will have disagreeing interpretations, but false teacher is not a good word to describe a difference in interpretation. False teacher is used primarily to describe certain people who have uh, engaged in intentional, uh, deceptive, immoral behavior for the purpose of destruction, to bring pain into other people's lives, to act out their evil desires. So, They've crept in unnoticed. It's interesting if you uh, Google wolves among sheep. There's a video out there somewhere from some documentary where somebody went out and they took a video of sheep out in a pasture. And they zoomed in and sure enough, right out laying among the sheep was a wolf. <laughs> it's like, why isn't that wolf eating the sheep? Well, he will, but uh, wolves, what they do, what they do actually is they get the sheep acclimated to their presence so that eventually the sheep don't care that the wolf is there. They don't know that the wolf is dangerous. The wolf just bides his time and lays among them, starts to smell like them, but obviously it's still a wolf. And if action is not taken on the part of the shepherd, then, yeah, the wolf will eventually pick off one of the sheep. So, not how I thought wolves worked, but that's because I'm not an actual shepherd and I don't know any actual shepherds, but I bet in the ancient world they probably knew something about that. So, Jesus talks about false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. He talks about that in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things he says in that section, Matthew 7 is he talks about judging them by their fruit. He says good trees don't bear bad fruit, bad trees don't bear good fruit. He goes on, and he's still talking about the same subject. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Many will say to me, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
again, maybe a bad habit that sometimes we get into of applying this verse to just any Christian. Well, not so sure about that. I think this is actually pretty specific application to the false teachers, to the wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, not a struggling sheep, but the wolf who's got the, uh, the ravenous uh, inward desire. And they are deceiving. They are not producing good fruit because they don't want to. They don't intend to. They never intended to. And so Jesus says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's kind of the key word there is practice. That word for practice is like a continual, intentional habit. You think about practicing something good to become skilled, to become equipped in some art or sport. It takes effort. You have to plan. You have to try. You have to schedule. It's kind of warped, but there's another side to people where they practice evil. They plan it, and they intend it, and they carry it out. And that, uh, so, you, so it's not to be confused with an accident or a stumbling or a struggle. It's like, no, nah, it's very different. It's very different. Although, I mean, wolves are good at deceiving, so they might say otherwise. But that's the kind of group that Jude is concerned about among his audience. He says they've crept in unnoticed. Um, and it says they were marked out for this condemnation. So he automatically says they, they are condemned, like they stand condemned. The interesting theological point there is maybe to think about, well, what does marked out beforehand mean? Uh, Clement of Alexandria, who wrote this probably around 200 AD, he wrote a commentary on Jude, and he said about this passage, about being marked out, not that they might, quote, become impious, but that being now impious, they were ordained to judgment. So in other words, they were not... He doesn't believe that Jude was saying they're marked out beforehand to be nothing but evil. They have no choice in the matter. He's saying, but now that they've chosen a path, now that they've practiced lawlessness, now that they've set their mind to it, uh, he says that is a path which has been marked out by God beforehand as saying that's a path of condemnation. That's the broad road that leads to destruction. So, these are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That's a license to sin. It's especially connotated with uh, sexual sin. And it says they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I doubt they go around saying, I deny Jesus. That would be too obvious. I don't think people would stand for that. They wouldn't get very far in there taking advantage of others. This is more like what uh, Paul says in the letter of Titus, chapter 1, verse 16, that it's by their ungodly deeds that they deny. So they confess the Lord on one hand, but it's by their ungodly deeds that they deny the Lord Jesus. So he says, I want to remind you of all things, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So you might have a footnote in your Bible that says, early manuscripts read Jesus. Not the Lord, but Jesus. Jesus is the Lord, so I mean, it's the same thing. But it's interesting because... This is an insight into the belief of the early church concerning Jesus' pre-existence before his incarnation. So, when he became incarnate, the word became flesh. That's who we call Jesus, but he existed as God before he became flesh in Jesus Christ. But, as God in the Old Testament, he did manifest himself. A manifestation of God in the Old Testament 
There's a term for that. The technical term is a theophany. It's an appearing of God in visible form. And so there were many theophanies in the Old Testament, and one of those theophanies uh, is called the angel of the Lord. So if you go through and you look at parts of the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord shows up, like when the Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, it says the angel of the Lord led them out of Egypt. Well, who is this angel of the Lord? Well, it's a theophany. It's God in visible form. It's God looking like a man, but he's, he's not a man yet. Jesus is when God actually became a man. The angel of the Lord is when God looked like a man. And angels often look like people. They often look like us. Uh, especially when they, I guess, turn the shininess down, right? <laughs> and so they show up, and I think the Hebrew writer says, entertain strangers. Some people have entertained angels without knowing it. That comes from the Old Testament stories, like when Abraham entertained another theophany experience where before God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, he entertains these three men. It's, It's God and two angels. Well, that goes into not verse 6, but verse 7. So verse 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So this is the weird, this is one of the weird things. This is one of the very weird things. So this is actually connected to verse 14. So if you go to verse 14, it says, It was about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Okay. So where did Enoch prophesy? Where can you find this verse that Jude quotes? Because Jude assumes that the people he's writing to know the verse that he's talking about. So, so Jude assumes that whatever he's telling them, that they already know about it. And when you know that they know, you can just piece it together, illustration after illustration, communication is clear, it's easy. So, the book of Enoch, there's actually a couple of them. We have it. We have the book of Enoch. And there's a first Enoch which is what is commonly called the Book of Enoch. So if you're going to go read it, read First Enoch. There's a second and a third Enoch. You don't have to bother with those. Those were written way later, after the New Testament, and so it's not going to be related to what Jude wrote here. But First Enoch was written at least two or three hundred years before Jude penned his letter. And most things, when they're written down, and we find these old copies of things, There's an oral tradition that precedes it by even more hundreds of years. So usually things are orally transmitted and then eventually written down. So where could you find the writings of First Enoch? Well, lo and behold, you can find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's going to be our oldest copies. Dead Sea Scrolls were found in, uh, well, by the Dead Sea in these caves in the 19, I think it was 30s. And uh, eventually the caves were searched out and things were found and translated and you ended up getting translations, well, a decade or two later, so that trickled down, and then after translations uh, eventually came out of the scholarly world into the into availability for the rest of us, and so really it wasn't until well, probably the 70s or 80s that we really could just like, go pick up the Dead Sea Scrolls and read it in English and see what was on those scrolls. But part of what was on those scrolls were well, portions of First Enoch. First Enoch is an incredibly long book. It's like over 100 chapters. It's split into five sub-books. But the first book, 
is 36 chapters, and it's called The Book of the Watchers. And if you want to read it, the best translation and study, or scholarly-wise, is uh, one by Nicholsburg. So find the one by Nicholsburg. Don't get the old one. Um, find the one by Nicholsburg. So those 36 chapters, the first book, it has a title. The book is called The Book of the Watchers. The Book of the Watchers. You ever heard of The Watchers? Sounds interesting. There's, a, there's like a vague passing reference to the Watchers in the book of Daniel. But basically, the Watchers are a group of angels. And we know that there are different hierarchies in the heavenly realms. And Paul alludes to that in Ephesians chapter 6 and in Colossians uh, chapter 1 and 2. But uh, we don't get lots of explanation. But if you go read First Enoch, the first book, the book of the Watchers, it tells... Basically, one large narrative, and it's an expansion of Genesis chapter 6. Really, it's just an expansion of Genesis 6, like the first few verses, where it says, uh, in Genesis 6, the sons of God came down, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and, and took them as wives, and they had children, and the children were called the, the Nephilim, who were the, the renowned of old, the heroes of old. So a couple of questions you know, that should come up to mind then is, well, who are the sons of God and who are the Nephilim and what in the world is he talking about? And so most people, I think today, uh, have an interpretation that began with Augustine in the 4th century and kind of became more popular after him onwards. Uh, but there was a dominant uh, assumed position that, that everyone kind of had a consensus on from... 300 B.C. to like 300 A.D., right? So, so for like 600 years, just throughout Second Temple literature, here we have in the book of Jude, there was an assumed consensus that the story told in First Enoch uh, that we have, that that story was true and that the sons of God were angels who came down from heaven. They shouldn't have done that. They're called watchers. They shouldn't have come down, but they did. They left their proper abode and they... Uh, mated with human women, shouldn't have done that, and the children, which were a result of that, that are called Nephilim, uh, those were the giants, the giants of like myth and legend, which is interesting. But this was the, you just, it was taken for granted that that was the case, that that was the interpretation, that that was the way it was. And so, if you had read Enoch, then you would know in verse 6 what Jude is talking about you would know that there is just one event in their oral history that would match up with the things of verse 6. These angels leaving their proper domain, um, being kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment, for the great day of judgment. Well, that's because at the end of the story, it's basically God brings the flood, and before, right before the flood, uh, which was to wipe out not just humanity, but also uh, the giants of old, uh, he also sent his archangels to capture and imprison the Watchers. And so this is called the Watcher Tradition. And uh, the tie-in to the Flood is that these angels, they didn't just have these hybrid children with human women, but they also taught humans things that were essentially... Uh, Knowledge that would increase and exponentially speed up sin among humanity. So they, in the Watcher tradition, these angels, they teach humans how to make drugs and how to have, uh, make abortifacients, you know, for abortions and how to make weapons more effective for warfare and killing. And there's a whole list of how to make hallucinogenics and 
occultic practices and sorcery and all that stuff. So there's a whole list. And so they're like, yeah, because of that, the hearts of men became rapidly and widespread evil. And so that was part of the interpretation then of why God reset the world with the flood. And it just was taken for granted that 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 was true. That was true. Now, some of the most common questions is, well, does that mean, you know, First Enoch is an inspired book that should be in our Bible? And the answer is no, it's not. However, uh, do you read other books than the Bible? It's like, of course you do. I do. And do you uh, find some things in those other books to be true? It's just like, yes, they are. <laughs> it's like, well, they did too. They read other books other than that which was handed down by Moses and the prophets. And uh, I like to refer to First Enoch as a really good Jewish fan fiction. And so I don't know if you like Star Wars, but uh, I like Star Wars. And, you know, the canon, things that are Star Wars canon, right? These, this, is, this is what's taken to be true. Are the movies, right? So you have all the movies and nine episodes and then a couple of extras. Well, there's a whole world of books called Star Wars Legends, and in those legends, uh, there are things that are not in the movies. And there's backstories and uh, sometimes things that are contradictory to the movies. And so those legends are not canon unless they somehow eventually make it into a movie. So actually, it's kind of cool because, well, sometimes the stories from the legends do make it into the Star Wars movies. And then it becomes canon. And then it's like, okay, yes, this was not the best illustration because Star Wars isn't true or real. But... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like that, a little bit. So, they had these legends, and some of these legends were thought to be very real, very true. And so, you have a common theme developing then of what kind of sin these false teachers were really involved with that was so insidious. Uh, and it was, well, it was sin of a sexual nature. goes on to use a third example. He likes threes. Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them, they indulged in gross immorality. That's referring to sexual immorality. They went after strange flesh uh, also and are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude is kind of using a, what I would call a dark irony. So with the angels leaving their proper abode, they go after human women. So Jude sees what the mob in Sodom going after the guests of Lot, who the audience, we're reading the book, right? We know that those two guests are angels, but uh, Lot doesn't necessarily know that those two men are angels, and the mob doesn't know that those two men are angels. And so Jude is just saying, isn't it ironic that you have a, a reversal of, well, the watchers going after humans, and now these humans going after angels? But of course, they are wanting to... Uh, how many other kids in here? Oh, my kids, that's right. Okay, well, I won't go. To... <laughs> you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, they say, in the same way, these men, by their dreaming, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they revile angelic majesties. There's another three, defile, revile, reject. Deuteronomy 13 is an interesting passage, verses 1 through 5. Moses, God through Moses, tells us that Sometimes there will be a prophet that arises among you, and they'll have a dream, and the dream will, be, will come true. They'll perform a miracle, or they'll have a dream about a miracle, and it will come to pass. And you would think, 
Good. That means they're a legitimate prophet. Moses says, not so fast. You have to look at what they're asking you to do after the dream comes to pass. After the dream comes to pass, if they're asking you to go worship other gods, this is actually a test. And you are to not follow them. This is a test of loyalty. Will you follow uh, something that sounds and looks powerful? Or will you follow what you know to be true regarding morals and beliefs? And so it's a test to see what's in your heart, to test your loyalty. So the people who dream and they just make things up and things don't happen and they're not real miracles, that's not really of any concern. She's like, well, not likely going to fall for that. But if people dreamed something that came true and they performed some miracle, this would be more tempting to say, well, what is it that you think God wants us to do? Well, on that basis then, these false teachers, whether by effectively prophesying or dreaming something that would happen or not, they use that basis as a justification or as a lure to perform the things that they want to perform, their evil deeds, to defile the flesh, to reject authority, that is to reject the right way of how to live out our moral lives as given by God. And it says they revile angelic majesties. Well, who are these angelic majesties? Jude talks about angels a lot. I think these angelic majesties are probably the watchers who were already alluded to in verse 6. But then we're going to talk about other angels. He says, Michael, the archangel. If you read the book of Enoch, there are, in this belief, this watcher tradition, in the Enochic literature, there are seven archangels, right? But just two of them we've ever heard of from the New Testament. It's Michael and Gabriel. But Michael, he's the head archangel. And so he disputed with the devil, arguing about the body of Moses. So it's a comparing and contrasting. It's like if these false teachers, even by their dreams or whatever impressive sign that they give you, uh, are they more impressive than Michael the archangel? No, they're not. And are the um, watchers more deserving of condemnation than the devil? Well, no, they're not. Well, then you have a pretty good example of how we should talk about these things which we don't know too much about. Michael the archangel, when disputing with the devil, doesn't rebuke the devil but say, the Lord rebuke you, then that should guide our own behavior in the way that we talk about fallen angels or demons or Satan. And there's some application for that today. But the weird part is, why are they debating about the body of Moses? (laughs) It's weird. It's weird. Well, there's another just presupposition they had in their context. They knew they could talk to each other about it because they already believed it. There is a tradition called the Assumption of Moses tradition. The Assumption of Moses tradition. What's an Assumption tradition? Well, anytime you read about an Assumption, it's about a tradition of somebody famous in the Bible who was taken up into heaven. And, like, that's their new permanent residence. So, well, the first one we read about would be Enoch, right? He, God, he lived 365 years. God took him up, and he was no more. He walked with God. God took him up, and he was no more. That's an Assumption. That's an Ascension story, an Ascension tradition. Elijah, right? Elijah is assumed into heaven. He gets a a chariot ride up into heaven, chariots of fire. And uh, there's a tradition that Moses was assumed, that after God kills Moses on Mount Nebo, um, that God brings him back to life and assumes him up into heaven. Now, that may sound far-fetched, but hold on a second. When 
Peter and James and John went up on the mountainside with Jesus, and Jesus transfigured himself before them. Two other figures appeared. And who were those two figures? It was Elijah, which we know he got ascended through the chariots of fire, and Moses. So it's not too far-fetched to think that, well, if Elijah had an assumption into heaven, then maybe Moses also had an assumption into heaven, because, well, they both appear at the same time with Jesus. And that would be a little strange, because it was the common belief that, well, you die, you if you're a righteous person, if you're a follower of God, you go to Abraham's bosom, right? Uh, think about the story of Lazarus and the rich man, where Lazarus ends up in Abraham's bosom, and the rich man ends up in uh, chains. So, Similar language being used here about the underworld and the spirit world. So, there are these assumption traditions then. And so the story about Michael and the devil arguing about the body of Moses, maybe it's the devil who is the adversary. He's the accuser, right? He's the prosecutor. Maybe he's trying to say that Moses doesn't deserve to be assumed. He doesn't deserve to be resurrected. Maybe something like that. But we don't know because we don't have the text that it comes from. We have uh, portions of the Testament of Moses, which might be connected to the Assumption of Moses, but it doesn't say anything about the Assumption of Moses in the Testament of Moses. And we don't have any fragments or anything for the Assumption of Moses. We just know that it existed, and maybe one day we'll find a copy or a fragment or something like that. So back to the threes. Uh, He'll give these three examples that the false teachers are like. They're like Cain, they're like Balaam, they're like Korah. Uh, for Cain, they've rushed headlong into the error. Uh, they've, they've gone the way of Cain, like Balaam, they've rushed headlong into error for pay. Like Korah, they've perished in rebellion. Um, this gives another insight into these false teachers. They're not just trying to carry out evil sexual desires, but also they're trying to take advantage of people financially as well. It says, there are hidden reefs at your love feast. A boat coming into shore, if you can't see clearly under the water, the coral reef that would be there will crash into that wooden boat, tear it to shreds, and you'll be uh, cast away. It says, that's what these men are like. You don't see them because it's, it's under the water. It's being hidden. It says, they feast with you without fear. In other words, there's no conscience working. There's no guiltiness or shame holding them back. It says they're caring for themselves. The word for caring there is actually poimeno, which is where we get our word for shepherd, poimain. So some translations will say shepherds feeding themselves, which I hope it wasn't this case, but it could be that these people who have crept in unnoticed are also now a part of the shepherds of that community. And that would be quite intimidating to have that situation on your on your hands. Paul warns about that to the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20, verses uh, 28 and following, where he says, I know among yourselves that uh, wolves will come in among you and go after the flock. There are clouds without water, so they look like they're going to bring something good and life-giving, but they come and go, nothing good comes from them. Carried along by the winds, autumn trees, without fruit. Um, Wandering stars, I'm skipping down, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Uh, In the ancient Near East, the sun and the moon and the stars, those are divine beings. They're not balls of gas burning 
really far away. They're, uh, they're up in the sky, and they are divine beings. That's why, uh, well, I mean, when divine beings come down, you see an angel is usually pretty shiny. So they thought, oh, well, those must be shiny beings. There are verses in Deuteronomy talk about the other nations being given over to worship the sun, moon, and the stars. They're gods. So it's a symbolic association between the sun, moon, and the stars and the gods of the nations, whom the Jews would have referred to as simply as angels, either obedient or disobedient. And a wandering star, well, that's a planet. So when you look out at the sky, the constellations are always in the same spot relative to the other, and they move counterclockwise, but the planets don't stay in relatively the same place to the constellations. They move around. Sometimes they retrograde where a planet's here, then it's here, then it's back here again. And so planets weren't called planets, really. They were just called wandering stars. And so that's a good image that they took advantage of to talk about fallen angels, to talk about divine beings who were created by God, who have left their proper abode, disobedient to God. They're wandering stars for whom the, I like the ESV, the gloom of utter darkness, that gloom to describe the underworld and the prison in which these rebellious angels from the watcher tradition have been bound and chained in. This is in Second Peter chapter 2, by the way, as well. They call it Tartarus, which is the equivalent in Greek mythology. Well, it's about these men that Enoch prophesied, and he says, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. So this is an end-of-the-world scenario. It's an eschatological image. And he says, thousands of holy ones. We know from other places like 1 Thessalonians 4.15, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, that when the Lord comes back with the uh, trumpet of an archangel, with all of his fiery angels, we're going to be there as well. That's when the resurrection takes place. And so the, his heavenly holy ones are going to be joined by his earthly holy ones who will be transformed, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 and following. So that transformation will be made like them. And isn't it interesting in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says uh, not all the bodies are going to be the same because the sun is of one glory, the moon is of another glory, and stars differ in glory from one to another. And so our resurrection body, he says, it'll be like that. There are going to be glorious bodies like the sun, moon, and the stars, but still differing one from another. So we will join as holy ones with the angelic holy ones, with our Lord Jesus Christ in the sky, and that's when judgment takes place. So we join with God in carrying out judgment, which is important for Jews' audience because they're experiencing traumatic experiences which leave the question just like it left in uh, Revelation 6, the martyr sitting under the altar in heaven saying, when will you judge on our behalf, Lord? It says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the question is, when, Lord? When will you repay? And the answer is the ultimate judgment coming when Jesus returns. We are transformed and resurrected, joined with the angels, and judgment is executed upon all. He says, remember the words spoken by the apostles, that apostolic testimony, that faith once for all handed down. And he says that you, beloved, in verse 20, your instruction is to build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. 
And some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So he uses mercy three times there. Jude likes threes. All referring to how the group then that he's referring to, not the others, not the creepers, but the group of believers, how they are to treat each other in the midst of this very difficult situation. He says you treat each other with mercy, and that's after you've spent much time in prayer. Prayer and the Holy Spirit. That's uh, evoking the image of the paraclete, the helper. God, guide me. Lead me in this situation. I don't know what to do. How do I handle these people? Jude doesn't tell them specifically how to handle these people. He, he doesn't say, here's step one, two, and three of what I want you to do with these uh, persons who have crept in. I think it's because God knew in his foresight that there would be a lot of different scenarios that could unfold. And each one of those, you're going to need the Holy Spirit to be with you and to guide you. And you're not going to know what that guidance is unless you're spending a lot of time in prayer, praying in the presence of the Holy Spirit, asking God to lead you to your next step. So that leaves us with our three takeaways then. Number one, evil is real. Evil is very real. And it's not just waiting out in the world for us to get out of church so that it can harass us and accost us. It's like, no, evil is very real, and evil has no problem coming into our church. Two, we will not know how to adequately deal with evil, real evil, if we are not spending a lot of time in prayer, asking the Lord to lead us not just by book, chapter, verse, but by well, the providential leading that he tends to carry out in our lives and the lives of those around us. The Lord has a way of opening doors and closing doors. The Lord has a way of bringing certain people together. And part of that is so that we can take part in the spiritual battle, so that we can do the things that Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 regarding our spiritual armor. So we need to pray a lot. And three, have mercy on the right people. He never says to have mercy on the creepers who crept in unnoticed, the practicers of lawlessness who plan an intention and are these hidden reefs, the Cains and the Balaams and the Chorus. He never says have mercy on them. But he does say, yeah, have mercy on those in your group who are doubting. Right? They're not sure what's going on. I'll be patient with them. Have mercy on them. Uh, there's others you can snatch out of the fire. Um, some you need to have mercy with fear. In other words, you can show someone mercy, but still have that godly reverence for the justice and holiness of God. So you can have mercy on someone without acknowledging that maybe what they've done or they're about to do or <laughs> thinking about doing is somehow acceptable or right in the eyes of God. No. Hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. The garment is a common idiom for how Christian writers refer to our bodies. And uh, we get new bodies. We get new garments. In fact, the martyrs in heaven in Revelation 6, they are given new white robes. So now they're going to be shiny and transformed. So have mercy on the right people. And trust that God will set things right in the end.
So evil's real. Uh, Spend a lot of time in prayer for the Spirit to guide you. And have mercy on the right people. Because in the end, it says that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord before all time, now, and forevermore. It's an impressive doxology at the end. And that's essentially all we can do at the end of the day, is to keep trusting the Lord, not to give up, not to uh, be too discouraged when we look around us and we don't know if we're surrounded by wheat or tares. It's like, well, there's a separation that takes place later, so trust the Lord and persevere until that time.